இப்போ எனக்கு இருக்கிற கொஸ்டின் என்னன்னா ஒவ்வொரு காலகட்டத்தில் ஒவ்வொரு பெரியவங்க தோன்றி அவங்க மனசுல அந்த நேரத்தில் என்ன தோணுதோ அதை எழுதி வச்சுட்டு போனாங்க அதை பாடிட்டு போனாங்க அது நமக்கு கிளாசிக்கல் மியூசிக்கா நமக்கு ஆயிடுச்சு ஆனா இந்தியன் கர்நாடிக் மியூசிக்கோட மியூசிக் முடிஞ்சு போச்சா இல்லை இந்தியன் இந்துஸ்தானி மியூசிக்கோட மியூசிக் முடிஞ்சு போச்சா இல்லை இல்லை வெஸ்டர்ன் கிளாசிக்கலோட மியூசிக் முடிஞ்சு போச்சா ஜாஸோட மியூசிக் முடிஞ்சு போச்சா அப்ப ரியல் மியூசிக்ங்கிறது அந்தந்த நேரத்துல தோன்றினவங்க செஞ்சது தானா அப்படிங்கறதான் எனக்கு இருக்கிற கொஸ்டின் second episode of our raja series this is deepak and i'm again joined by mahesh and bala in the effort to critically evaluate raja's work and properly locate his output in the continuum of music evolution to get some of the core concepts we will be talking about in this series we felt it was important to establish a context uh, or a common fact base that each of us in this pod will need and potentially some of you as listeners will need as well so this pod will be primarily focused on a brief history of music and its forms and what the state of play was in the 20th century when film music and eventually raja came into the picture so to kick off this episode bala let's dive into why it's important to have this type of historical context when we're talking about raja's music so to have a historical or evolutionary approach on music i think we have to discuss that in three contexts the first is the fact that we are standing right at the edge after a great musical era because worldwide if you look at um, the time between 17 to 20th century classical music had a terrific run all around the world so what it has created is it has created this huge treasure of classical music um, but it has it has also created lot more um, problems in the sense um, there is a heavy usage of grammar without a purpose so so that is one of the problems why we have to take a historical approach because we tend to discuss about music in terms of grammar and we forget the purpose of the grammar that we that we analyze so that is the first problem to give you an example if i have to talk about symphony it is easy to talk about the forms of symphony in the sense i can talk about what is the first movement what is the second movement what is the third movement um, you know it could be a minuet it could be a sonata and so on but the most important point is to understand why we need symphony in the first place or to say why did symphony as a form work why was symphony as a form such a hit in that time and what made composers adopt to a form like symphony now only if we understand that part of it i think the grammar part of it makes a lot more sense uh, it's not to say that we need only grammar or we need only the purpose we are not taking a binary stand here but so what's happening right now in our times is we tend to discuss a lot in the grammatical terms and we kind of uh, uh, slightly forget the purpose behind the grammar and in art it, there is no point of grammar without purpose so that's the first context 
Now, this is a very universal context. The second context is the Indian context. Now, that is more tricky because in India, music remains a very sacred art in the sense it has always been associated with spirituality, devotion, or it's claimed that it's that way for the past 2000 years. Of course, every art provides you with that space to, you know, have a spiritual, metaphysical, rational, irrational, progressive, left, right, any approach. Art gives that space. But I think we in India have a very monotonous view of music. And it is very evident if we look around and if we hear uh, the narratives around music coming from the classical musicians, the, the historians, the musicologists, this is an ever-present uh, narrative that music is um, sacred art, it is spiritual, uh, they also add it up with the mythological and supernatural narratives around that and it, it really clutters our thought process in the way we look at music. And I have to re uh, admit that crossing that barrier was very important in understanding music and in understanding Raja. So, so that is an added burden in the Indian context. And we have to, again, use a historical or evolutionary approach to, um, to find a way out of it or, or to have a different narrative and to really try to understand music much more deeply and much more in a purposeful way. So that is the second context. And the third is um, when we are discussing about film music and Raja. Now the funny part is when we are talking about classical music, we talk about a 3000 year history. And when we talk about film music, we talk about it in a very 20 or 30 year period. Right? This, is, this is a diametrically opposite thing. One is being talked about in very ancient terms, where the other seems to be a phenomenon that suddenly happened or it, it, it suddenly appears in a vacuum. And that will never help us understand film music or Raja because, uh, because the time scale is too short to understand. Musicians didn't happen all of a sudden, right? There should have been something before them. And forget the musicians, it's not just about them. It's about the listenership also, right? So what did we as listeners hear before uh, film music. I think that perspective is very important if we have to analyze film music and Raja also. So these are the contexts that will get clear if we have a historical and, uh, and an evolutionary approach towards music. And that's why we have to um, have that. So now, I mean, we've discussed this in the past about your, uh, your preference for having an evolutionary approach to music. Uh, and then the so-called problematic theorizing of, of music, uh, particularly in the 21st century, uh, in the 20th and 21st century. Now, uh, if we have to go back and, and study history, and it's a fairly complex thing with a lot of loose ends, with a lot of conjectures rather than, you know, uh, hard found evidence of things. How, how are we going to try and make sense of uh, the historical evolution with, of course, a lot of sense of humility, but all, with also a certain level of conviction that this is what could have led one onto another and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I, I'm really keen to hear how you make sense of this uh, based on your readings. You're right, Makesh, it's, it's very challenging. Not, not just to read about it because obviously reading doesn't happen in a, in a very chronological way. You don't kind of start um, you know, in a very methodical way when it comes to reading. We, we tend to go in different directions and then try to figure out how it all works together. 
but how do we talk about musical history with certain conviction so to talk about that i think it will be better if we talk about what are the challenges in talking about musical history and with conviction now the first challenge is quite obvious because we have discussed this about the time scale of music music is one of the oldest art forms and that obviously poses a significant challenge um in terms of the sheer time scale that is needed to talk about the history of music right so that's that's definitely a challenge the second comes in terms of the evidences to talk about musical history so typically we have the oral traditions and the recorded traditions available to talk about the musical history and while these are um uh, you know they have been researched well enough there is always an element of error margin in these evidences uh, that is never going to go away for instance if we look at oral tradition there is always a chinese whisper problem so much so that um, kurt sachs who is one of the pioneers of uh, musical history he tells that one has to completely reject any european researcher trying to record uh, music from other musical traditions um because it's very easy for a distortion to happen when a european researcher or or anybody from an other musical culture listening to another culture it will be fairly easy for them to distort to squeeze the rhythm structures to fit their uh, suitable rhythms or the rhythms where they are comfortable with and it is easy easily possible to approximate the melody to something that they are used to right so the oral tradition poses that problem that can also be voluntary intervention in oral traditions for instance um ubisa in his writing on music he gives a fleeting remark about how mutusami dichidar's uh, school had an impact on the devaram singing in in the temples so that was a voluntary or that was a known intervention in the oral tradition of devaram singing right so when we talk about oral tradition we we are obviously we have to accept that there will be error margins although every culture kind of tells that this oral history is an unbroken chain so now if we talk about the recorded tradition and before the advent of printing press we have the palm scripts we have the manuscripts and that poses challenge as well because you always have the copying error the insertion errors um, for instance natya shastra uh, you have multiple copies of or multiple versions of natya shastra and they have some differing um, passages in their content as well and uh, say in natya shastra you will have one line which says this is not allowed in drama and the second line would say this is allowed now that could be an insertion insertion uh, after a particular time you know something would have been added right so there is a always a possibility of a copy issue or an insertion issue when you are talking about recorded history before the advent of printing and all that right so the evidences that with which we talk about musical history we have to always admit that there is a possibility of error margin there now the third problem is the lack of evidences themselves because though we build a narrative 
uh, for musical history it is always a very thin line because we are sometimes talking about one book or one oral tradition that represents say 100 200 300 years there will be one book which is the only documented uh, musical treatise for five centuries and we are trying to build a history with all this which means there are a lot of missing pieces yes to talk with conviction about musical history we have a problem of time scale we have problem of error margin in the evidences we have problem of lack of evidences but the conviction to talk about musical history comes from the researchers themselves right starting from 19th century we have a lot of serious work on musical literature musical history writing and there has been absolutely incredible works by great scholars so we are obviously banking on these great scholars and their works in stringing these pieces together and building the um, narrative for musical history right so the conviction to talk about history comes from these scholars and as well as with the humility that um, there could be a entirely different narrative that that can come up of course it's not going to be that easy because there is already a certain mountain of evidence and mountain of work that has happened but still there is always a chance of a different narrative and we have to be humble enough to accept that right so that said um how do we explain that in say an episode now that's a different challenge so what we can do is we'll look at music in four stages um the first will be uh the primitive stage or the primitive man's music and essentially we are talking about music of the stone age that is before 3000 bc and the second stage we will talk about the civilization stage um and we are talking about the great civilizations like the sumerians the egyptians the the greeks the indus valley the vedic all all the all of these so how did music evolve in that stage and the third stage we'll talking talk about the medieval era and um, we are uh, classifying that as somewhere between the first century ad to say 15th century ad again this medieval era is in a context of music alone right and then finally let's talk about the classical music era because classical music worldwide happened between the 17th and uh, 20th century so so we'll try to cover this and let's try to reduce our our discussion around the western and the indian music because essentially we are looking at raja so those are the two schools that that are of interest to us right so we'll try to restrict our discussions to that yeah that makes a lot of sense bala because music is one of those uh, one of those art forms that creates genres and subgenres and you know people start to get really really niche in terms of the types of music so establishing very broad categories would be really helpful in terms of uh, two things right in terms of establishing categories of music themselves but also understanding the the scale of time over which uh, these musical traditions or these musical genres actually existed i also wanted to add one thing um, we should not forget that um, in music the classical stage comes a little late right uh for instance worldwide the music the classical stage of music comes between the 17th and 20th century whereas i'm 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 sure if you look at other classical arts like the literature and all that the classical era starts much earlier we talk about the greek epics we talk about the ramayana mahabharata or the sangam literature so if you look at it the classical era of other arts starts far before than music and we call music as an ancient art which is which is very true but 
we have to keep in mind that the classical era of music comes very late now now that's a that's a very interesting problem which i thought we'll address first so that will give us an idea of the timeline of music so the usual narrative that we hear is music is the say the gift of god to man or you know nature gave music to man but the reality is actually quite opposite to that music per se is the only art that was not given to man by nature essentially all our arts are nothing but we trying to copy or imitate nature if you look at painting if you look at any art for that matter man started off as trying to imitate uh, nature um, he he drew the animals he drew um, the nature per se but we don't have anything in nature called music uh, and of course let's not confuse this with bird chirping and there is nothing outside the human realm that we can call music uh, for instance you can always look at a uh, look at the sky and say wow this looks more beautiful than a painting but have we ever heard a music outside the human realm saying that this is fantastic music no we have not heard because there is no music in reality in fact music is the most fictional art and it's the fiction of man right so what has happened is man had to pick this art form from its very basic raw material which is the sound and he had to build it brick by brick he had to understand the uh, sound he has to understand the notes he had to um, you know build the scale so if you look at it the first uh, 2000 3000 year of human history is about man working out the raw materials for music and that's why after 15th century that is when music becomes a real thinking art and after that is when we see the classical art form classical movements and classical music throughout the world right so so when we are going to talk about our history that's something that we have to keep in mind so the primitive era and even till the medieval era we've had that's the history of music uh, building its raw materials and the later era is the history of music as a, as a classical art so that said uh, i'll i'll move into the primitive um, stage of music so let's talk about the primitive uh, era of music right so this phase has really interested a lot of ethnomusicologists the historians because obviously everybody wants to know how music started and where did it start and uh, and that has led to the the researchers go and research the music of the tribes the so called uncivilized uh, uh, people and they are spread all across the world and the unanimous conclusion that the researchers have is that although we call them uh, the primitive people their music is not primitive uh, the music is at a fairly advanced stage of development in most of the tribes around the world which means that we will get to we will never get to know how uh, music started but one thing is sure that these tribes are spread all across the world which means no culture can claim that they invented music or which is usually uh, usually been the case right every culture wants to claim that music is theirs and they invented music but that is not fair because tribes across the world have different musical cultures and they all seem to be very advanced 
there are some learnings for us from their culture uh, it's that the music is instinctive in the sense they are not trained they are not uh, you know uh, they are not doing it on uh, on purpose as a special art form that's purely instinctive and this is instinctive mostly because music for the tribes and the primitive man because the tribes in turn represent the primitive man music is so much related to dance so from the early stages dance and music are so related because music per se is also it involves a lot of body muscles in a way right and if you look at the conductors like say for instance gustavo or even any musicians carnatic or western pop artists or so you you still can't separate music and dance it was very close and in fact there is a lot of theory about the dance origin of music of course there are many other theories like the logogenic theory or the language theory of music uh, similarly there is a dance theory of music as well that it's a dance through which man uh, identified rhythm and from that the music started in the in the same way probably rhythm was the first thing first musical element that man uh, kind of uh, discovered or even invented in this case and that's why we separate the musical stages as the first stage is the drum stage where man invented rhythm rhythm instruments the second stage is the lyre stage which is where man got hold of the string and the string instruments like lyre in tamil we call the yal these string instruments gave man a hold over the notes or the tones so so we separate the growth phase of music in the primitive age as the drum stage and the lyre stage and of course in for primitive man music was part of his routine part of his celebrations part of his day to day activities and to give a indian context here some of the oldest tribes that have shown significant musical cultures are around us surprisingly or unsurprisingly they are around us the vedarhal of silon are a very well known tribe to have a great musical culture and it's the same with the andaman tribes also in fact the interesting thing with the andaman tribes is that they they have a, a composing culture in the sense one tribesman will compose a song and the others will learn that and vice versa right so they have a composing culture even in that uh, in in the andaman tribes so so that gives us a picture of the primitive stage so primitive man had an instinctive music the music progressed from the drum stage rhythm instruments to the lyre stage and uh, and in fact most of the tribes show an advanced uh, stage of music before we move on to the civilization phase era of music um we have already explained the drum stage the question is how did he arrive at the notes now we have a great pride in saying that um, every culture for that matter and we also say that that sarigama padanisa was born in vedas or uh, this was born in tamil or this was born in say chinese culture every culture kind of claims that but the funniest part is almost every culture have just seven notes because that's a phenomenon of sound if you want to subdivide sound it finally the best way to go about is you will end up in seven notes or the diatonic notes it's just like uh, the seven colors of the rainbow now and this came about in the early stage of uh, man's music itself right around 3000 or 4000 bc itself man had come to this diatonic stage of the seven notes
now the interesting thing is how did he arrive at that because when we talk about notes or tones now we talk in terms of frequencies we know that c is uh, if you talk about the swaram sa or c we know that 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 is a particular frequency but there is no chance that early man had any notion of frequency and all that so how did he arrive at the notes and how did he end up at seven notes that's a very interesting question probably the early man when he had a string and he vibrated he would have heard a tone and let's fix that say the frequency of that is say 200 hertz and let's keep the length of the string as x what happens is if you if you take a string and vibrate that if you take half the length of the string and vibrate that say the length of the string is x by 2 length is inversely proportional to frequency we know that right so the half the length of the string will provide a frequency that's double the original frequency right so what would have happened is the early man by altering the length of the string he would have landed in some notes and he would have found it mysterious and of these notes he would have identified certain notes to be very consonant to the original note for instance we all know that the octave or the upper sa is the most consonant note to the lower sa so, so that's probably the first interval that the early man would have hit upon he would have taken a string and when he took half the length of the string he would have hit on the octave note and the next note that he would have landed on to Uh, because every culture has this note is the pa note which is the fifth note and in indian culture we call it the sa pa relationship and in west we call it the circle of fifths because fifth is the most consonant note to a given note after and after its octave so these are the notes that the early man uh, would have easily arrived at the c its fifth the g and the upper c Um, the fourth which is uh, ma in indian context is the uh, the octave is the fifth of the fourth right so sa ma pa and the upper sa are four notes that the early man would have easily arrived on just by altering the length of the string without having any clue of um, vibration of sound or frequency or any such complicated scientific theories so by altering the length of the string he arrives at these four notes and these four notes of are the pillar of any musical system even today the sa ma pa and the upper sa are the pillars of any scale system and in between notes the re and ga and the da and na ni that varies in every uh, musical culture uh, for instance in the indian system if you look at it it's very interesting because sarigama is actually the uh, it gives rise to the fifth of the padanisa for instance sa the fifth is pa re the fifth is da ga the fifth is ni and ma the fifth is uh, sa right so sarigama is symmetrical to padanisa what is called the purvanga and the uttranga tradition in the indian music school so so this is how a string instrument would have led to man arriving at the seven notes and with that he goes to the civilized phase where he now has the rhythm uh, the drums and the string instruments and the seven notes i think at this point like this this is fairly common across all cultures because you see something as simple as a string instrument right you see a lot of commonality in terms of how it was derived from the lute and then how it's so common across the various uh, across the various musical systems and the tambura itself 
is that 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 term is sort of universal across multiple cultures in in turkish there is a the word tambur in greek there is the tamburas and they're all derived from, supposedly all derived from the lute I, i i'm assuming then that there must have been a fair amount of intermingling between cultures right even as early as that stage absolutely i think um, that's that's perfect because it's not just the tambura of course that's one example that you gave right so there are multiple examples of etymological relationship between various cultures and even beyond these terms terms like uh, tambura or kitara to guitar now sitar or terms like pan who is the god of the pipe instruments in the greek mythology and you have pan here and then there is melos um which gave rise to the melodic and melos mela so there are lot of etymological there are a bunch of it uh, in in the musical language but even beyond that if you look at the musical systems themselves and a lot of philosophical uh, relationships you can see that these cultures gave and take a lot right uh, they took a lot there was lot of cultural exchange between these musical cultures and and that is why i stress that this is a problem of our times i think it's in our times that it has become such a huge problem and if i look back and that is why we have to discuss about the civilizations and how they really took the music from the drum stage and live stage and took it to the next stage so they kind of freely intermingled of course we can now say that they freely intermingled that could have been frictions but still you can't hide away the fact that there was so much of give and take between the cultures and that is something that we cannot overlook and in fact we have to learn when we look at these cultures so essentially we are talking about the greek and uh, the vedic uh, cultures of music here now if you look at the greek culture the greeks had they are so good in so many schools which which we all know and similarly they were extraordinary in music as well in the sense they had a clear musical system which they called the genera system um, they have a very clear pattern of arranging the notes they were the ones who called it as scales because they thought that notes are they are going up in a scale form and then they also felt that if they also related every scale to an ethos or pathos in the sense just like we say this ragam has this emotion or this um, r- relation uh right so the greeks themselves they had some philosophy around the scales and outside of this so they constructed a beautiful musical system with the philosophy and all that but even outside of that it will be surprising for many that right now what we call the stem uh in terms of the education greeks had something called quadrivium if you are considered a scholar in greece you have to be well versed in arithmetic geometry astronomy and most importantly music because music was considered a queen of sciences until till even till the medieval era music was considered queen of sciences now why because like we said already musical intervals can be deducted uh, from the length of the string right so that gave greeks a way to explain things in terms of numbers so they thought this quality of sound if this can be explained in numbers then the whole universe should be explainable in numbers also when they were able to explain astronomy through numbers they 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 thought that they had figured out the universe uh, they they thought that they could explain everything through logic they could explain everything through numbers and music gave them that idea and that confidence so it is in that 
time frame that music was really elevated to a mythological art because sound sound was the microcosm of the macrocosm in the sense the sound represented the universe the sound represented the logic of the universe and the greeks extended that to say that the whole universe was in harmony so on one hand it gave rise to the scientific temper of the greeks and when i say greeks obviously that culture kind of spread across and through alexander it came to india as well right so that kind of scientific temper was all around the world but the other part was that also gave rise to the supernatural mythological magical qualities of sound which till now we even hear where um, there are tales in that era that sound has the quality to destroy cities or sound is magical so people only restricted people can use certain sounds languages were considered very powerful and magical and we even have sanskrit being spoken in that terms till now so so all this if if you look back you can see that starting in that uh, that era of the civilizations and similar to greek system of music we also have a glorious system of music in the indian tradition as well we see that in vedas in fact vedas themselves are recited so there is a recitation in vedas and if if you even look at the recitation it initially starts as the three note recitation then it goes into five notes then it goes into six notes so you can see the progress of musical system in that recitation in itself and if you look at ramana mahabharata there is also a lot of mention of music as well so so yes so these civilizations they really took music to a different pedestal and like you rightly said there is a lot of intermingling between these cultures and uh, that made music spread across and they also you can also slightly blame them for for the supernatural effect that is now associated with the music and sound it's uh, it's quite fascinating bala we started this discussion with you explaining how music is the most human of arts and and that's a i mean that's a quite a convincing case and then we we reached the stage where greeks were trying to rationalize uh, the phenomenon of music and in the pros- process of rationalization we ended up with this marriage of the supernatural we could have had two streams uh, of the way forward for music but somehow the the influence of religion and the supernatural seems to have had a lasting influence more than the the rational rigor of analyzing music how do you make sense of this dichotomy and also what what do you think explains the the fact that religious influence has had a lasting impact way more than the the academic rigor that uh, that greeks tried to uh, impose on music yeah that that's really the funny part what should have been one of the greatest human achievements actually the credit now is completely given to god but that's the history of world and we can't do much about it as i think if you look at the uh, history of the medieval era i think that will be very clear as to why we have this uh, discussion even now about uh, the impact of religion on music that can be well understood if we look at the next phase because the next phase is the phase of the major religions 
and we have to also credit the major religions in the sense how they kind of conserved music developed music but at the same time there are flip sides to it as well so if we look at the medieval era i think that will become far more clearer because it is in this era from the first century where the religions started consolidating they became the centralizing centralization forces across the world right for instance in west the church gained its control uh, in this era and when the church gained its control fascinatingly it again picked music music was used as the tool to spread uh, religion and uh, there was also a lot of religious practices in church church settings right so what they did was for instance in the monasteries the monks had to stay awake all night so what happened was um, the monks started chanting they use music so that they can kill boredom they can stay devoted and this chanting started in an antiphonal way in the sense one would uh, uh, give a first verse and the other would respond so that kind of later moved into polyphony so so if you look at it one way it is for the spread of religion but that also kind of gave rise to the musical forms that we see today so this is a fascinating story of uh, contrasting uh, contrasting factors here so yeah so in the west the church used music to spread religion the church used music for centralization in the sense wherever the church had to spread and this was uh, in foreign lands so they had to use music to um, convey or to bring about the devotion spiritualism and all that so that is when this practice of musical notation started because when you are going to sing it in a foreign land you have to know how to uh, or how the melody is right so they started making notes of the melody in the text in the biblical text so that's that's the starting point of the musical notations that we today celebrate so in a way if you look at the polyphony started through chanting the musical notations through started through spread of the centralization of the religion to non native speakers there are flip sides to it but it also led to something beneficiary for music as well and then um, church also started universities to train musicians and these musicians once they were trained they also had a look at what was happening because of course when we are talking about the devotional music church music and all that still there was also folk music in across uh, europe and across the world so when church started universities the people who were trained there they were obviously attracted to other forms because knowledge does that to you they picked those other forms and they started analyzing that and that's when they they brought these folk art forms into church as well so there was a slow adaptation of the people's music into church as well so this medieval era kind of has its fascinating stories of evolution of music but at the same time it also tells us the story of how religion had a dominating control over music and it's in the church sense whatever church allowed was only being sung um, in the halls so whatever the church decided with respect to music that was what was allowed and so that was a stifling effect of the church as well now if you look at in the east in india because we are doing a comparative study here so if we look at india around the same time when church was dominant and there was a centralization happening there 
around the same time even here you can look at for instance in tamil nadu you see the um, devaram tiruvasam the shaivite tradition trying to spread uh, shaivite uh, or you have the nalaira dribya prabandham so everything again the religious spread through music right so music was again a vehicle for the religion here so this this is kind of a story that you can see across the world when the major religion started consolidating and there was a centralization exercise and similar to the west here as well you see lot of scholars coming up musical scholars um for instance towards the end of uh, or between the first and the fifth centuries we have the first uh, musical uh, treatise of india which is the natya shastra which is a quite a thorough book on music and we have brahadesi by matanga by say 6th century um, and then we have sangeetha ratnagara by sarangadeva so it tells us that here as well the scholars wanted to consolidate because in all these texts you can see the the musical scholars writing about the desi or uh, the folk art forms here as well as the marga which is the devotional art form here right so in all the indian texts as well you can see the kind of consolidation that was happening between the folk and the classical art forms of course predominantly these were all centered towards spiritualism of music but they were also conscious of what was happening outside and they tried to take that in as well so that's the story of medieval era and kind of that's where the control of uh, or the impact of religion and music uh, came about so what was the impact of what we traditionally call the biggest thing uh, the biggest discovery in in history right like gutenberg's printing press uh, what was the impact of things like that happening in the west in the west versus some of that potentially not happening in the east right like from from the printing press all the way through the industrial revolution i think the universal consensus is that parts of south asia has completely sort of skipped or bypassed that if we have to take a comparative study what we will find fascinating is that till the 15th century i think the music of west and the cultural context of west and india are slightly similar right in the higher civilization era and as well as in the religion controlled musical era i think they are quite similar but the major change happens in the 15 around the 15th century in west where you have a lot of things happening the renaissance after that only you have the protestant movement happening where if the church had a centralization effect the protestant protestant movement was uh, was for the native languages right they they were one of the one of the key fighting factors was the usage of native languages in the church that had a significant effect if you look at the german composers that came after that they were all uh, using the native folk art forms and you can trace all that back to the protestant movement as well so by 15th century or so a lot of things happened like the protestant movement the renaissance the reformist movements um, there was even a call for secular arts and as you rightly mentioned the printing press played a major role and that is one of the most important reasons why classical era of west happened that way and right because what printing press meant is every composer can study the composition of his earlier composer the methodology of his earlier composer so bach studied vivaldi's compositions and his writings in turn 
his art of playing keyboard instruments was studied by virtually every composer in Europe and that includes Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven. So that gave rise to the classical era in West. When we say classical era in West, that uh, it spans across the 16th to 20th century. And we have three major phases uh, when it comes to classical era in West. The first is called the Baroque period. The second is called the classical period. And the third is called the Romantic period. And uh, 20th century has a lot of other phases. So let's not talk about that. Let's probably come to that later. Of course, the naming is slightly a problem because uh, the baroque classical and romantic they are just like a genre naming you can't force uh, you can't fix every composition of that era as a baroque era or a classical era that's that's just a general naming convention we, we should not get carried away by this naming so if you look at the baroque era we talk about composers like handel and bach of course there are numerous composers in all these eras but i'm just trying to give couple of composers to indicate the kind of music that happened there. So if you look at their music, that is more of a polyphonic music, a more of a counterpoint music and more of a sacred music in that era, because this was coming off medieval era. So it's obvious that that impact was still there. And after that, you have the classical era. Again, another very confusing nomenclature. This era, you can, the, the major composers were Hayden and Mozart. And if you look at the era, the musical style of this era is vastly different from the Baroque era because this is not polyphonic anymore. This is homophonic in the sense there will be a melody line and that will be backed by the harmony uh, context, just like, and it is the same style which we are having till now. And this era virtually invented this style. It was Mozart and Hayden who really um, invented this classical style and gave it to us. In fact, it was a popular music of that time. And then we have the next era, which is the uh, Romantic era, which is essentially classical uh, or the drama of the classical era taken to its heights by composers like Beethoven and Wagner. It is in this era where music became a national symbol, music became a national art and the composers were made secular gods. We all know uh, the legend of Beethoven, the legend of Wagner, and music went to its extreme heights in this era because both in its form, its cultural importance, its significance, and in every which way, it's the romantic era where music really hit its peak. Because uh, if you look at Wagner's uh, operas, it could go for uh, four hours or six hours or eight hours and Beethoven symphonies will be like 200, uh, 100, 200 uh, instrumentalists playing the orchestra. Right? So music hit its peak in this era. And after that, you have the uh, atonal and chromatic era uh, later. Of course, we are just giving a bird's eye view now, and we will come back to these eras and these styles when we discuss in depth about Raja's music, because we will obviously reference a lot of this. Uh, and that's exactly why we are doing it now. Right? So the classical era of the West is, is in these three phases. And like you said, the impact of industrial revolution, of science and technology, of printing press, of the reformist movements had a great impact. Now, in East, unfortunately, that didn't happen. 
we don't have that kind of reformist movements or industrial revolution or science and technology compared to the west so the classical era in india also entered its peak between the 17th and 20th centuries have one of the most richest classical musical traditions that's no doubt about that but it vastly remained as a, a monophonic style we all know that uh, carnatic music is mostly a vocal style of music and we know the um, trinity of carnatic music the tyaraja shama sastri and muthusami dikshit and between 17th and 20th century we have the peak of peak time of carnatic music as well, right and why that happened is again because of uh, political <clears throat> reasons because music and any art form needs that kind of a political stability so in in tamil nadu we had the vijayanagar empire we had the maratha empire which had kind of poli- political and religious stability in tamil nadu and that's why though carnatic music started in lot of places and it still had lot of uh, uh, you know great artists across but it strengthened in tamil nadu because of the political stability so i think it's in the classical era where we can see a difference of how the west went about it how east or in in our situation how uh, india went about it and um, we talk about south india but we also have to keep in mind how uh, hindustani music was prevalent in north india at that time as well so so that's to give a birds eye view of how classical music was between the 17th and 20th century it's quite fascinating bala I, i have to go on a slight tangent here before we come back to the to the agenda uh, how did the 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 use of the term classical f- to represent a certain era kind of become a representation of a form of music in fact we use classical music both for western classical and indian carnatic music what gave uh, rise to this phenomenon uh, it's only in the higher civilization era where you have separate class of people who who are actually getting trained and performing music because as we discussed in the primitive stage uh, music was uh, you know everybody can learn music or ev- do music and by the time the higher civilization kicks in we have separate group of people who are dedicated to do music who learn music who perform music right so it is from that stage itself we have a separate class and i think from that the term classical music comes in right so and but it changes over every period because i think in our term our times when we talk about classical music we we have a lot of things in mind we have a mental image of particular style and that being referred as classical music we have a particular image in our mind which we refer that to as classical music we we think that if if somebody is performing in this particular way for instance if you look at the western uh western school we only refer to something as classical if it is done in an orchestra fashion if uh, people are you know sitting silently and watching a great orchestra perform that's a classical setting right and it's the same here as well and we have lot of such connotations which don't mean much classical in every era has changed its definition and in our times we have lot of aura about this classical term Uh, which includes uh, 
an image of the style of the appearance of a lot of terms um so so i think that's how it has come into existence and i think it has become far more rigid now திருஞான சம்பந்த பெருமான் அருளி செய்த திருக்கடை காப்பு தலம் திரு பிரம்மபுரம் பண் நட்டவாடை திருச்சிற்றம்பலம் தோடுடைய செவியங்கிடையேறிவோர்தூவெண் மதிசூடி from here i want to touch a little bit upon a subject that's very close to your heart i know that and and also uh, in some ways we'll explain uh, raja to some extent uh, when we talk about him in detail later is that while we're talking about vedic music and greek music and and how you studied all of them and and in the process of studying more you you chanced upon this discovery that uh, that there was a deep culture of tamil music itself uh, parallel to all this and and that was an existence uh, for a, for a long long time uh, as a separate musical system of its own can you talk a little bit about how you discovered it and and what uh, you learned uh, subsequently about it and and what does it tell us about uh, about the history of tamil music so mahesh thanks for bring, uh, asking that you brought it at the very right time so this is i think this is something that happened to me 10 years before um where i had uh, around that time i had a fairly good understanding of the western history and uh, the indian history and was really fascinated about that but still um, when i looked at from a perspective of raja i couldn't tell what was missing but there seemed some puzzle was still missing i chanced upon a book called yarnool when i turned the pages that's when for, uh, that was the first time i uh, saw the verses from silapadigaram on tamil music um essentially i'm talking about the aichir kuravai line of kural tuttam kai kilai uraiyili vilaritharam that was the first time that was that i was seeing that as part of silapadigaram going through the book and seeing what was there in silapadigaram that really changed my whole thinking of music because this was something that was happening in a language that i speak and i had no clue of all this till now because when i when we immediately see that there is kural tuttam kai kilai ulai ili viliri tharam it tells a huge story it says that there is a seven note there obviously that's a diatonic note and it also indicates the kind of maturity in that musical system this is a real matured musical system that we are seeing that i was seeing there and um, bear in mind that this is not any translation to sadjam rishabam gandharam or any way etymologically related to that so this seemed like a very unique system for in in tamil again when i say unique we have to always keep in mind that every culture has given taken but there is also a certain uniqueness in the way every culture has progressed its music so that was really fascinating because Uh, then i um it was a search of what are all there available in 
the early tamil texts like the sangam literature one confusing thing was though there was a mention of kural tuttam kaikilai there was no men- mention of a musical syllable in the sense there is no mention of a sarigama padanasa because if you look at the vedic or the sanskrit school of musical system you have sarigama padanasa and sadyam rishabham kandaram sadyam rishabham looks like an acronym for sarigama padanasa whereas here you don't have a musical syllable and that answer came in the 7th century text called chendam divaharam so chendam divaharam in a place where it writes about music this divaharam is essentially a dictionary which the jains kind of started doing around 6th and 8th centuries so in that kind of dictionary they mention about the musical notes as um, there are seven notes they say and it is sari gama padanisa and the next line says a e u a i o au ivai yelum yelisai kuriya which means the vowels in tamil and in tamil vowels we have the nidal and kural what essentially chendam divaharam tells is that the nidal of tamil is the seven notes or can be sung as seven notes now again that that's a head spinner because it makes perfect sense right in the diatonic scale if you look at it in say sarigama padanisa or a b c d e f g there are always two notes without sharps if you look at the carnatic uh, musical system you have the sa and pa without sharps or flats you have re1 re2 ga1 ga2 it's the same with the the western music as well and similarly in our nadal we have this i and au and these two are diphthongs in the sense they don't have the kurul for it or the nadal for it they are the in between notes so these are seven vowels which take the shape of the diatonic scale and this has been constructed this way because end of day the primitive man works on sound he identifies the sonority he identifies the quality of sound and it, language is also in a way related or how you speak a language is basically it comes out of the knowledge of sound as well right so both these schools should have worked together right and when i say this vowels relate to musical notes it need not be only in tamil of course you have this tradition in egypt as well which means the languages spoken around the world some of the ancient languages would have had musical origins as well now if you go back to tolkapiyam tolkapiyam clearly says in its eluthadigaram that isayodu sivaniya narambin maraye enmanam pulavar which is again it is referring to musical text so if you look at the whole sangam literature or the text around tamil the tamil text also were meant to be sung that is why it has all this yap and the metrical poetry so and you also have the great panarkal tradition in tamil as well so this means that this is not some some um, knowledge of some higher civilization this was a trivial knowledge that was available across the world across cultures across languages now natyashastra mentions so many regions in india having a great musical culture it, it mentions dramila which is tamil it mentions andhra it should be there across many languages in india we of course have a very singular view of indian history in terms of uh, starting the music starting from vedas and uh, going to the carnatic music that's a fairly correct history 
but that's just not the only history and it is very important for the discussion that we are going to make because when we are talking about film music in tamil nadu we are looking at it at isolation that it just happened out of nowhere but that's not the case if you really look at it starting from tolkapiyam and um, the sangam literature and the next the devaram thiruvasagam tirupugal and then the carnatic music so you can say that almost 2000 3000 years of music of recorded tradition of music is available in the small land and that is something that we have to keep in mind when we are talking about the context of tamil nadu and context of film music in tamil nadu because there is a great history of musical culture here and film music is the next chapter in that i think that is a very important perspective to have when we approach the 20th century which probably we will do in the next episode thanks bala thanks mahesh uh, i think we are at the end of this episode where we talked about the major time periods that bala covered and uh, when he started the episode uh, the next episode as he said we'll talk about the 20th century and i think it will start to cover why film music gained so much prominence and what were the factors that drove that that sort of rise to prominence we really had a ton of fun learning about the history of music uh, learning about some of the context and uh, trying to set the stage for to have a more fruitful discussion about raja's music uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode as well and we look forward to having you back for the next one naan oru sippi nadana kalai theriya thevillai irupinu munakadai vilakida cholve mudunaarai mudugurugu isai nunukkam kalariya virayal nul panjamarapu ivai isai koorum seyitriyam kootanul nadanakalai vagai koorum pala tonnulgal koorum thorkaruvi mulavu murasu udukai mridangathaala melamagum thulikaruvi pullangulaludu marakilai odithu amithu cheevaali porundu mugaveenai timirinaayanam nadaswar பண்பாடும் குரல் வகையாகும் இத்தனையும் ஒருங்கிணைந்து குரல் துத்தம் கை கிளை உழையிழி விளறி தாரம் என ஏழிசை எழும்பத்தாளம் தவறாமல் இசைந்தாடும் நடன கலைதனில் எத்தனை பாவம் உண்டு நடனத்திலே அவை அத்தனையும்